1: You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week, we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. This week, we're talking about fake news. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today. And so I'm joined by Mark Alley, CT's editor-in-chief of Real News.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We would hope so.
1: To the best of our abilities. Exactly. Mark, who do we have this week to discuss this with us?
0: Well, we have Lisa Richmond, who's with us. Uh, She's associate professor of library science and director of library and archives at Wheaton College. And she came to our attention because of a lecture she gave on Jacques Ellul and information to a library, uh, academic librarians conference. And I've been a a recent student of Ellul and having read some of his works, especially on propaganda it occurred to me that it would be great to have her come on the show to talk about Alul's ideas about propaganda because it so overlaps or intertwines with this conversation on fake news. And I think his insights can do us a great deal of good. She is, in fact, a translator of Alul's presence in the modern world, uh, which most of us know as Presence of the Kingdom. And she's studying for her PhD at a wonderful French university, which I'm not going to pronounce, but I'm going to ask her to pronounce.
2: (laughs) The University of Montpellier.
0: Very good. All right.
2: Well, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me here.
1: Awesome. We're glad to have you here as well. So this week, we are going to be trying to get into the weeds of one of the more complicated discussions that we're having as a country right now, partially because it goes really deep. Fake news is really difficult to talk about, partially because it kind of exists on this continuum. So it includes the publication of Fabricated Stories that have been specifically designed to fool people, but it's also come to entail stories that also misrepresent the truth or perhaps have not been corroborated correctly. Um, There's some laziness by the reporter that's going on, and this has been happening both on the left and on the right. I'll give you some examples. As all of you listeners know, this publication. This magazine is known as Christianity Today. Perhaps it kind of sounds similar to the Christian Times, except that the Christian Times was created last fall by Cameron Harris, a recent college graduate who purchased this domain, the Christian Times, at, for $5 at expireddomains.net. In the website's Short History, it included a number of made-up stories, including its hit Breaking Tens of Thousands of Fraudulent Clinton Votes Found in Ohio Warehouse. His story was shared over six million times. And the article also netted Harris several thousand dollars because of the ads that were placed on his site. So it's according to a New York Times profile that was published on Harris over the weekend. I personally read less stories of fake, quote unquote, liberal publications But liberals at all have not been exempt from running with less than confirmed stories that may resonate with them because of confirmation bias. So uh, one recent example of this was a story that ran a couple weeks ago about a Jewish couple who was allegedly forced to pull their child out of school so the child could, quote, flee town over fears that fake news stories um, had blamed them for the cancellation of a Christmas play. So there's a lot going on in what I was saying. There was multiple levels. But the bottom line is that that story was not true at all. After the Anti-Defamation League investigated the story and talked to the family, they found that they had actually not left but gone on vacation. Anyway, there's there's lots of this type of stuff going on right now, as well as our own president talking repeatedly and chiding the media for fake news. And so this is Increasingly been in the news because of that. then the evangelical community, evangelical personalities have grown increasingly concerned that Christians are not only susceptible to believing fake news, but sharing as if it were true. So this week, Ed Stetzer, um, on his blog The Exchange, which is hosted on Christianity Today's website, wrote an article called "Facts Are Our Friends: Why Sharing Fake News Makes Us Look Stupid and Harms Our Witness." And Trevin Wax of the Gospel Coalition wrote a piece entitled, Alternative Facts and Christians as Gullible Skeptics. So yes, we have a lot going on. I'm really excited to have this conversation for the gut check today, which is the time when Mark and I give our just immediate visceral reaction. thought we'd just ask, how does the word fake news make you feel?
0: A little weary. I get weary of any uh, phrase or word that gets repeated in the news over a period of weeks and months, which this has been. It also makes me think, uh, wonder if this is a new thing. And then a little bit of research, you realize it isn't. The one that struck me with most forcefully was during the 2008 election. There was fake news going around that Obama was a Muslim and many people believed it. We got an interview with him at CT and we wondered why he finally granted us an interview. And after 10 or 15 minutes of questions, we, we said, Senator Obama, what, what comments would you like to make or that we haven't asked you about? And he said, I just want your readers to know that I'm, I'm not a Muslim, I'm a Christian. The, it had gone viral so much, that fake news, that he felt the need to talk to Christianity today to make that point clear. I just think, yeah, this is a problem. It's more of a problem than ever, but it's been a, pro- a growing problem for some some years. And I'm, I'm kind of tired of it, but it, we do need to address it.
1: My gut reaction to all of this is just that we are talking past each other again, not surprisingly. I just feel like fake news has been thrown around as a way to discredit anything that one does not believe in. And there's a lot of like lack of unspecificity with regards to intent. Um, Again, there is sloppiness of reporting, and then there is also people who buy websites to deliberately mislead other people. I think that language is one of the the biggest tools that we can use to really bring clarity to things, but I haven't seen a lot that is trying to bring clarity. I see a lot that's trying to obscure clarity or trying to raise the alarm, but not necessarily being specific with what needs to be raised alarm and what are the consequences of different things. Yeah,
0: it's being used as a phrase to shut down conversation. So as soon as you see a report you don't like, you call it fake news and conversation's over.
1: So let's ask our expert here to kind of delve into these issues with us. Mark, I think you have the first question. Yeah.
0: uh, So I think what would be uh, helpful, Lisa, is to begin by telling us who in the heck Jacques Ellul was and why we should be interested in him at this moment.
2: He lived in in France. I believe its dates are 1912 to 1994. And he was many things. For his income, he worked as a professor of law at the University of Bordeaux in France. But his interest ranged widely across many fields. And he published about 50 books in his lifetime. He was extremely prolific, plus probably a thousand newspaper articles, opinion pieces, things like that. He was a Christian, a Protestant. That's in a minority in, in France among Christians. I think those are the key points about him.
0: So he's written one of the books that has struck my attention in the last uh, couple of years is his book entitled Propaganda. So what's his big argument there? What's he, trying to, what's he trying to say, and how does that apply to what we're talking about today?
2: Elul's overall uh, desire was to try to understand our modern world well, and he wrote both for Christians and for those who were not Christians. His book in Propaganda fits into that broader plan As Elul studied or looked at our world today in the 20th, or in his time, it was in the 20th century, he observed that there was an overriding uh, influence or way of being that he called technique. And by that, he defined technique as the pursuit of the one most effective way to do something rather. Effective
0: and efficient Yes, both,
2: that's right. Both of those together. The book Propaganda came out in 1954 in France. So his book on propaganda was the application of his idea about technique to the realm of human communication and interaction. And he wrote other books where he studied technique from other perspectives. So propaganda to Lul, is a way of using language and images and other things to accomplish a particular objective. It is the most effective way to achieve uh, the outcome that you want, to get people to do or to believe or to, you know, to uh, live in a certain way.
0: We tend to think of propaganda as telling falsehoods or lies or fake news to get people to change their beliefs or their actions.
2: The relationship to truth is a a key consideration. Elul would argue that for... A propagandist, truth is simply a tool to be used when it is the most effective way to accomplish your your goal. If it is not the most effective way, then you use falsehood. Okay. So that can be contrasted with a ethical, true desire to communicate in which our hope is that we will understand truth more fully. So a propagandist, that's not the objective of the communication. It is to accomplish a certain outcome and if truth serves that outcome, use it. Great. But if not, you discard it.
0: So he writes this in 54, and he's concerned about, I think it would be fair to say, the manipulation of mass audiences to do or to think differently.
2: Right. And for Alul, that was one of the new things about the 20th century was mass society, mass man, today we'd say, you know, people. That was the the means of communication, the media now enables you to reach a mass audience and to treat individual human beings as a mass and to influence them as a mass. And that was something that was not possible before the 20th century.
0: Propaganda is a study of the essentially the rhetorical techniques to make it possible to persuade uh, people to do something or believe something differently. So what would you think of the fake news conversation today?
2: So let me go back for a moment to the de- definition you just gave. I would, I would clarify that a little bit further, Okay. which would be um, not all rhetorical, not all effort to persuade, is propaganda okay? So what's the difference? And this is where I draw on another theorist. So Alul didn't didn't uh, help me very much to, to identify the difference between good rhetorical, ethical rhetorical aff- efforts and propaganda. So I turn to another uh, scholar, Stanley Cunningham. Who has written a wonderful book on propaganda, and he very much respects a little and uses a little a lot. But what Cunningham helped me understand was there is really a continuum. There, there are higher and lower ways forms of persuasion. The higher forms are the ones in which you appeal to sound reasoning, truth, obviously, rationality, evidence. Okay, and then there are ways in which we can evaluate evidence, the strength of evidence. That is good rhetoric. Propaganda will appeal to the lower forms of persuasion. So some of the ones that that Cunningham gives are attention, impressions, images, information bites, factoids, um, confusion, going all the way down to actual falsity. So I think this is an important point to make because some theorists of propaganda actually would say all persuasive discourse is propaganda. And I don't
0: you don't buy that. I don't buy okay. that. Okay, but let me uh, challenge you or Lola, whoever I'm challenging. Right. Can you really persuade people if you don't dabble in impression and emotion and uh, the subterranean psyche that we all have? Uh, who, who of us is truly rational people who makes decisions based on facts alone?
2: Okay, so going back even to Aristotle, Aristotle said there was a place for the emotions in, in ethical rhetoric. So it's not just an appeal to rationality. However, you're raising an important point that Alul also brings out in great detail, which is once propaganda is at work in a society, it forces other people to engage in propaganda, even if they would prefer not to. This is a particularly a problem in democratic societies. In a totalitarian or authoritarian society, the people in charge can force compliance of the population simply through force, right? In a democracy, that supposedly that does not occur uh, or it occurs less, so you have to persuade. Now, Elul would say the percentage of a population that is actually um, able to follow these higher epistemic forms of communication where you're appealing to careful reasoning and evidence and so on is always going to be a very small subset of the population. So what is most effective is propaganda and we are forced to participate to some extent in propaganda when our opponents are already engaging in propaganda
0: doesn't he make the point that democratic administrations those who are in power have to use propaganda to get their uh, bills passed and to get public support for things so by definition then their 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 opponents are going to have to use propaganda to counter the administration's propaganda.
1: The way that I've commonly understood propaganda is something that is promulgated by the government, but is this something that can be then applied to how institutions use it? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. can individuals themselves yes. use
2: it? Yes. According to that definition of Cunningham, whenever you're trying to persuade by appealing to these lower epistemic forms of communication, as he calls them, you're engaging in So it's actually propaganda. a very broad definition mm-hmm. of propaganda then. Right.
0: So on the one hand, we have the democratic experiment is by its nature propaganda is a huge temptation and in fact it's beyond a temptation There's
2: it's hardly part a, of the environment yeah right it's part that of the we good, bad, cannot and the ugly. escape okay mm-hmm.
0: so in that regard i would assume that aloe would say well of course fake news is going to be a problem
2: in a democratic society right i think it's always there i think what's occurring in our society right now is just it's coming to the fore as a concept as a thing but it's not new, right? I mean, it's always it's always been there.
0: Why does Alul think we're attracted to propaganda and slash fake news?
2: Again, because of his analysis of what is occurring in modern society, he I guess you could call him a a twentieth century existentialist. He said, on the one hand, we are part of this mass society, which depersonalizes us. It separates us from one another. We don't have organic forms of community any longer. And then at the same time, our society is telling us that each of us as individuals is extremely important. Each of us has to determine what we believe. We each have to act, you know, uh, authentically. And the experience of most people today, he says, is one of inferiority and fear. And so we seek a way of thinking that we can, that is that is available to us that someone else has put together that we can adopt to make it our own framework in which we're going to try to live in the world, because otherwise it's just too overwhelming. The amount of information that we're bombarded with today is overwhelming. We can't make sense of it all. It's incoherent. And it would take extreme expertise to understand even a portion of it in a really authentic way. So we all realize this to some extent. Even the so-called, what he calls the intellectuals, and by that he just means people who've been educated and who think um, about things. So not any kind of necessarily an expert class of people, but just people like us. And he would say that propaganda serves a psychological purpose in our lives by giving us a framework, like I said, that gives us meaning, that gives us a sense of belonging, that reaffirms things for us that helps to assuage these negative feelings that we have.
0: Yeah. So it seems to me that he, one of the things he identifies is that our very life situation in 21st century information overload democratic society has a number of realities that not only encourage propaganda and fake news, but actually make us want to have propaganda because we, it, makes, it sorts out this confusing world.
2: That's right. And he says, you know, we we think education's the answer, you, you know, educate people. And well, you know, there's a reason that like Chairman Mao, for example, promoted literacy in China and and supported the um, creation of a simplified Chinese script so that people could learn to read and write more easily. Someone who doesn't read, Alul would say, is much less susceptible to propaganda. Now, he was saying that in an age when mostly the information would come to you through written form. But the person who doesn't watch the news on TV is less susceptible to propaganda. The person who's not on Facebook, we could say today. So being able to read and write is not in itself any guarantee of um, any psychic goods or or um, epistemic goods. It only goods.
0: exposes you more to more That's facts right. and information that you have to figure out how to digest.
2: That's right. And end up feeling completely um, alienated. I feel like I've been having this conversation a lot
1: with people in the past couple months about The internet's effect on institutions. But it does seem that traditionally, if you were engaging in propaganda, you were far more successful if you were part of an institution um, and just in your ability to target and reach people and to have some sort of credibility. But, you know, as I discussed in the example that I gave, this person (laughs) for $5 essentially created um, the artifice of an institution and did so with just enough credibility that it was able to persuade people that. They weren't idiots for believing or passing this around. And also the internet allowed that information to disseminate um, without this person having to go through the normal procedures that you would if you were an actual institution, whether it's filing papers to, you know, to actually run your own business.
0: Well, convincing newspapers to report on your findings. Yeah, that's Exactly.
1: Any type of thing. And so all that was needed was him to write this article to pay the $5. And suddenly he had at least, again, the artifice of credibility there. and to some extent the internet encourages that or it it, it enables wide dissemination without actually having to like put as much money and resources um, and integrity in some ways out there.
2: There's a good side and a bad side to the internet. So on the good side, people who were formerly shut out for various reasons from being able to have an influence, now it's a level playing field, sort of, more so anyway. On the other side, Uh, We have this complete cacophony of voices coming at us, and it's perhaps harder and harder to evaluate them.
0: You're kind of in the business, as we are, of actually making information more available to people, more and more information. Right. So we're part of the problem?
2: Right. And that was one of the things I was talking to the librarians about. The librarian, the library profession is often talking a lot about censorship. Censorship is really bad. We, we're against censorship, et cetera, et cetera. And I was trying to suggest to them, well, without letting go of that concern, what about the concern for propaganda? So the presence of information. As opposed to its absence? What are the problems associated with the presence of information in people's lives? So, yes, it's a concern about just is our business to be just get, putting more information out there? Uh, do we have an educational function as well? That's very controversial in my profession.
0: What would be Alul's response? How do we live a life so that we're less persuaded by propaganda and more by higher forms of persuasion?
2: Alul suggests, for example, in presence in the modern world, that the first step for us, as that book is written for Christians specifically, is what he refers to simply as awareness. Our first job is to try to become aware of the world in which we are living. What are its features? What is it like? He says, for example, when you go to the movies, don't go to the movies to watch the movie, go to the movies to watch the audience. How do they respond to the story that's on the screen? As you look at them, um, what 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 do you learn about people? And that's just a little example of, of awareness. He said, you know, we as Christians so often want to jump into trying to solve all kinds of social problems. This is certainly true for us as evangelicals, right? We get we're all doers. fired up, yeah. we're doers, we get yeah. all fired up about we want to fix every, every problem. exactly. Yeah. And he says, you know, that will be completely pointless if you do not begin, first of all, by trying to understand the world. But then secondly, going back to this business of effectiveness and evangelicals were really inf- infected by effectiveness, effectiveness right and efficiency, yeah. right we pursue that and he said you know what the only effectiveness that is possible really is the effectiveness that god supplies he says we are we need to be available for god to use and god will supply the effectiveness not us.
1: I mean, I've just been thinking so much about information overload in the past year and also felt really, yeah, really blessed to work in this environment where there are theoretical reasons for why we do not necessarily run things. And theoretical meaning people have thought about why we will run and not run particular articles and been aware that coverage has impacts on stuff that we, stuff the world that we exist in. And I appreciate working with editors who are not that we're not just, not just something happened and we have to get it up, but we have to figure out something larger and unpack the implications behind publishing it and talk through that a little bit more. Um, It seems much more self-aware of the fact that we can't really escape being part of a movement ourselves. Like we're not just the media that, exists and hovers above and just kind of tells people what's going on, but we can change how people feel. I, I, realize, I don't know if that sounds manipulative, but I don't think it's meant to be. I think it's meant to be a, a form of prudence and carefulness um, on our part.
0: I think I would say our job is to try to help make people aware in the ilolian sense. Otherwise, it's very discouraging to think about myself being editor-in-chief of a media publication. If I'm not at least doing something to subvert the very enterprise I'm in. And the way you subvert that is try to do it responsibly and make people aware. Uh, And then let God do the the convincing. Any of the convincing that needs to be done, the Holy Spirit's got to do it, because that's beyond our ability.
1: I'm just wondering, Lisa, if you could give us some thoughts about just this, again, fake news trend that's going on. Is there any reasons why Christians specifically should be concerned about this trend? Yes. (laughs)
2: Yes. <laughs> um, because we believe in truth, right? I mean, so do some other people in our society. We should uh, join forces with them to see what ways we can collaborate together. We believe that there is such a thing as truth. We don't believe that there's just um,
0: just your truth and my truth.
2: Right, or so-called alternative facts or whatever that means. Um, so that is our goal, right? Uh, that's our ultimate goal. And to ultimately respect human beings because God respects us, infinitely values us. So here's another theme that is so important to a l- l- Ends and means. And to turn people into means to get what you want as opposed to treating them as an end in themselves and treating knowledge as an end, something of great value that is the goal ultimately, as opposed to just a means that we can use when it's effective, discard when it's not as effective as some other means.
0: So, Lil's response to this very devout Christian pragmatist, hey, that's all nice and good, but if we wait around for people to respond to higher forms of rhetoric, let's take one issue, abortion another million babies are going to be killed this year. But if I play by the rules in our culture, I have a chance of actually persuading people to change the laws, to reduce the number of innocent children being killed. And if I have to use propaganda to do that by Alul's definition, I'm going to do it.
2: Yes, now here I'm going out a bit on a limb because I'm not fully, I'm not as confident as to how Alul would respond to that. But one thing that he does say is we are implicated in, in the world's ways as Christians. He says, one of the features of modern life is that sin is becoming more and more collective, and we are all constrained to participate in it. So that would be perhaps an ethical question that he would encourage Christians to consider to what extent to participate in propaganda, for example, for the goal of trying to reduce the number of abortions. Yeah, he he's really critical of the Christian who thinks that they can stand aloof. Yeah, he he yeah. would also agree with the critique that ethics is not just about our own individual life choices, but it's about community. I uh, was listening to your previous podcast with Le- Theon Hill, you know, he was making the point that racism can be something within the individual heart, but it's also embedded in our society and in structures of our society. And Elul very much believed that there were structures, you know, principalities and powers at work in our civilization. But it
0: sounds like he believed that you couldn't escape structural injustice. You can't.
2: Injustice. That's right. You yeah. can't. I want to go back
1: to some of the points that you were saying, Lisa, about truth and why Christians value the truth. I imagine that we could actually find a lot of unity in that as Christians. And I actually don't think that's part of. I think where people start to diverge on that topic is yes, I want to believe in the truth, but how do I know what's true? And so then that's kind of where I see the partisan fault lines come in specifically around the the credibility of the mainstream media. So their progressives will tend to say, yeah, you should be able to Look, you know, they'll they'll look at kind of like traditional media outlets, whether it's the Times or the Wall Street Journal, other national outlets that are out there, NPR, and say like these are the people that you should feel comfortable believing. You should not just believe everything you hear on the internet, but like legacy organizations, mainstream media. Conservatives um, have long felt very maligned by these organizations, and I. It seems to me in my readings of how people feel about the media, the fake news things has become the rhetoric that they've been used to be like yes this is the straw that broke the camel's back. Look, we cannot trust them at all anymore. They've been doing this all the whole time, but now that we live in this place, like like why should we give them any type
0: of credibility? Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Where do we go from there? You know, where where believing in institutions almost feels like it's become partisan in some ways. And how do we talk to each other about the truth or about rallying around the truth when the application of that when it comes to how we digest news seems like it's so split.
2: We all really need to search our hearts because i think we are all one of the forms of sin that's present in our lives is we have certain things that we want to be true and that we want to promote and so we do all kinds of things to you know to confirm you i think mentioned confirmation bias really we look for the evidence that supports what it is we want to be true and we discount the evidence that seems to go against it and so on again we need to we need to ask ourselves is my is my goal really to seek truth, wherever that will lead me? Or is it that I'm already committed to a certain way of thinking that I feel very comfortable in, and that I would prefer to be the case? The fact, you know, the fact is, the life is really complicated, right? The fact is, Things are really hard to figure out and they don't fit into neat boxes. We all have to remember that we are seeking God's truth more than a certain ideology, a certain, another word Elul uses is myth, and by that he just means a, a, a mental framework that provides meaning to our life.
3: God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout scripture. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
0: I think that's why people subscribe to certain magazines and newspapers. I've made this speech to my staff many times. People subscribe to Christianity Today because they want their worldview reinforced. That's primarily why they pay money for that. Now, our job as journalists is to do that and also to push them a little bit, otherwise they get bored with the magazine. But one thing I encourage certainly our staff to do, which they do pretty well at, but even uh, would be when I meet people, uh, my children, I give them this advice of... Okay, so you're getting the New York Times because one of the reasons you're getting it is probably because it reinforces your worldview of how how to look at the world. And they do a pretty good job of that from a certain worldview. But to be really fair, you should be reading the Wall Street Journal or the American Conservative as well because they're going to see the world with a different set of eyeglasses and you're going to find some insights that you're not going to find if you only read one source. So I think that's one way to... Uh,
2: Try to read a variety uh, yeah, of subvert sources. subvert
0: propagandas effect on us is to read a variety of things to see. okay, it was a lot bigger than my biases.
1: And and that we're all susceptible to tribalism. I think this is where I find it to be a little bit harder. So on the one hand, you know, we can be like, how do we, all of us in this room and all of us listeners do our best to quote unquote, get out of the bubble, which is something else that has been thrown around recently, um, as far as things to escape but how do we actually go about addressing you know the splinter in other people's eyes especially when it can feel in the in the moment that there's so much at stake if people are changing how they vote for president based on something that did not actually happen right so going back to mark's example about obama being a muslim and and they've completely, you know, because I guess being a Muslim in this case was used as a reason to write him off. I remember being confused when that came out because I said, OK, I mean, like, so what you can yeah. all you can actually be a Muslim and be president <laughs> anyway. Um, but in this case, it was used as an ad hominem attack against Obama. And so you see that on your Facebook wall or in a you that comes up in a conversation that you have with someone and it's. It, it's hard to just be like Are it's you beyond
0: like... bias let's say something comes up that's beyond bias it's just so simply it's not true false. It's mm-hmm. false. how do we actually go
1: about that without necessarily every time sitting down and having this conversation like how do you define truth do you think that we all need to know about what truth is can you just call it out i mean it seems to be oh, yeah
2: yeah i think when i when we're talking about just actual falsehoods uh yeah just call it out. I mean, that's what I would do. Uh, if you if you feel pretty solid that you know that it is false and you know why you think it's false, right? Uh, that you actually have knowledge about this that it is false, then I don't think we need to get into kind of complex theoretical conversations. No, I would I would go directly for that.
0: Yeah, my wife has Facebook friends who share a lot of fake news.
2: When you say fake news, what do you mean? Lies. Okay. And do they know, lies. do they know the ones who are sharing, do they know that it's fake?
0: No, they don't. So my wife will try to do them the service of pointing them to Snopes or whatever piece of information that can correct it. But there are times when it gets so overwhelming that she just stops friending people because it's just after a while. She feels
2: too stressed by it. Yeah. she gets Understandably. Very, She
0: gets very stressed by it where I, you know, I can read that stuff and go, oh, that's crazy. And I don't even think about it again. She reads it. She's a much more compassionate person than I am and a caring person. And she worries about it and gets anxious about it. And that's her only recourse sometimes. The way I deal with, I think, that is uh, I've noticed that uh, since we've prepared this podcast, how do I deal with stories I don't particularly care for that I think are going to challenge my point of view? I stop reading them after a paragraph or two. And I I, I, I I do that. I'm thinking, why am I doing that? Because in principle, I have this principle I should be reading points of view that disagree with me in order to expand myself as a human being. We still need to do that psychologically. In other words, we're we're just weak people. At least I'm a weak person who cannot constantly be bombarded with all different points of view there. There are periods when I just have to say, I just want to hear what... I agree with for a while and and just reaffirm that what I believe is at least rational. It may not be the complete truth, but it's rational, it's coherent, it does good in the world. And then once I've given myself space to kind of feel comfortable with that, then I have more psychic energy to actually go out and read someone I disagree with.
2: I think Alul would totally endorse that. I think, you know, he would say there's a time for everything and there is a time for comfort and for seeking comfort and reaffirmation and being part of your, like you said, tribe. And then there's a time to go out of that and test those things by an outside perspective and see what you want to modify.
1: I'm just still feeling really stumped because I think that what Lisa was referring to earlier as the myths that people believe, giving people a Snopes article is not enough to dislodge that actual myth that's going on. And I don't even know if that's something that like, well, I think that we as friends, I mean, if we're actually in people's lives, we are able to have conversations that may ask them probing questions to kind of poke holes and poke helpful holes. I think friendships are actually really good at trying to trying to make people question the own stories that they tell themselves. Yeah. And at the same time, I'm just trying to think of like at the pastoral level. Or other people that are leaders of institutions that are listening to this, you know, how do you do about that for a larger audience, too, without undermining, without like throwing the baby on the bathwater, right? Because this is what I'm just thinking in my head, right? I mean, part of the problem that we have right now is that attacking specific, you know, intentionally fabricated stories right now is also being used to attack institutions overall, right? And so it's a good thing. In some ways, to call out something that is specifically erroneous, but how much do you end up undermining just like widespread confidence in the media at large in the ability of think tanks or you know a company like ours to do our work? I don't necessarily think we're also called to like endorse this like widespread cynicism, but it's so because the conversation again takes so so much nuance, it's hard to parse between them.
2: This isn't quite an answer, but to follow up on what you're saying. Another thing that's that's being discussed a lot right now in our society is the whole role of expertise, right? And how people are becoming less and less interested in in finding an expert who can explain something to them, not or not understanding the difference between somebody who is an expert in a f- field and who has an opinion or information to give you that is of more value worth than just the average person, their opinion about something. And so I think that that plays into... What there's a you're deep
0: saying. distrust of experts today right yeah. so
2: why why is that is i think a great question and a little would want us to pose to ourselves
0: well i uh, my initial response would be it seems to me experts have been used in a propagandist sort of way <laughs> so that people just after a while well you call your expert i'm going to call my expert and what you know
2: so experts haven't been pursuing truth above all things but they've been colluding in the purposes and goals of Many some of, other. Yeah.
0: Of course, we want to make a sweeping generation. But but yeah, it's been my experience in reading experts that they are either themselves are participating in propaganda or their information is being used by others as, as propaganda. So it, it does make me as a reader roll my eyes when they say, according to the psychologists of New York State University, all of a sudden I'm going, okay, what you're trying to do is tell me, you're trying to convince me to go, oh, this is a really important quote now.
2: I'm just not going to be impressed, actually. Yeah, I choose, not, I to choose
0: be... not to be impressed. I right. ch- choose to get some distance from it. And I I don't know if that's a good habit or not. It's a it's probably a good journalistic habit. It's probably a bad habit as a human being to be suspicious of people. Right, but and there that, you go.
2: Yeah, I know. I agree with you. And I think hmm. again, it's so American society is very populist in in the sense of we're less uh, deferential. So I I was born and raised in Canada, hmm. and it's a more still I think a more deferential society where you're going to be more uh, willing to recognize someone else in authority over you or so on. Well, that has a good side and a bad side right, in American society, we're more prone here in the U.S. to say, I don't care if you're an expert (laughs) in something, I'm going to make up my own mind. And that's been true since the
0: early 1800s. Right. Right. That's part of the American fabric. It brings
2: a dynamism and innovation, I think, to the society. Uh, But then it has its perhaps negative side as well.
1: Do you guys have any thoughts about how to help someplace like our place rebuild trust
0: Well, I think one thing that's important to me, I I don't know if Alul would agree with this, but Reinhold Niebuhr, someone else who I'm deeply impressed with, I think we have to lead from weakness in the sense that I think we have to be willing to admit we participate in this entire system, that we have found ourselves personally succumbing to propaganda when we've just been lazy, that we sometimes have reverted to actually publishing propaganda when we become lazy, that we're part of a news media that has many examples of being lazy. I think if we lead from the point of, we're not in this moral position way up here, looking down on the rest of immoral society and stupid society, but we are caught in the fabric of it. And we too are struggling to retain a sense of objective truth and a higher rhetorical standard. I think if we start with that admission, I think people are much more open to uh, to listening to us because nobody wants to listen to a, to somebody who's morally pure frankly I don't think I don't want to listen to someone who's morally pure because I look at them and I go well god bless them but that's not me
1: I feel like a lot of people do Yeah Yeah I think people like to think of their leaders as being untainted and think of them as being able to them to rescue them from stuff Okay Yeah I just find that like I don't
0: <laughs> <laughs> And you do
1: I mean I understand that there is there has been at least in the past 10 years I've noticed like people like to have speakers and leaders who feel more vulnerable. Yeah, the whole or,
0: uh Bene Brown.
1: Yeah. And, and and will be real about their flaws. I think that's true for, for some parts of the population. I you know, just by Brene Brown talking about that stuff. But I've also feel like just the disappointment that I see when people screw up and make mistakes. There's there's a lot of sense of betrayal that feel that I I sense that people feel, whether it's someone even like an athlete or a coach or a celebrity, how could they do that? You know, which implies that there was the trust that they would not do that.
0: So you'd say we that we might it might be to our self-interest to to speak from a pedestal more.
1: That's what I'm trying to decide. I mean, okay. what exactly what is the brand that we're trying to say here? Are we trying to say like we're just a flawed group of Christians trying to give you the best news that we can or we have a bunch of experts that are here in their field who are intel, you know, intelligent, smart, understand their theology, have a strong grasp of the world, you know,
0: and are not subject to propaganda.
1: Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that are smarter
2: than that. All right. So I would offer maybe a third alternative. Okay. Something, <laughs> something along the lines of, we are a group of people who really uh, care about truth and understanding truth better. And we have brought together various guests who we think can help us understand that better. And we, we want to offer to you what, the best of what we have found together. You know, something something along those lines. This reminds me of... Something I think Mark, you said a moment ago, uh, going all the way back to Aristotle, who wrote about a- rhetoric and his insights on rhetoric continue to be some of the best insights available to us. One of which he said the the rhetor, the person who's trying to persuade someone of something, needs to have ethical appeal. He did not mean appeal to the person listening to you to be an eth- to be ethical. What he meant was the person who is trying to persuade you needs to come across themselves to you as an ethical person. And some of the trouble that we have is people, no matter what, what uh, place they are on the political spectrum, when you talked about being um, reading a paragraph or two and then, and then closing the magazine, usually when I feel that way, it's because of the tone that's coming across. I feel I'm being talked down to, I'm not being respected. So we all, I think, need to think more about this ethical appeal, which is we need to try to persuade people of something by treating them with respect and showing that we are treating them with respect. That's one part of ethical appeal, showing that we respect people. If we as Christians could do that better, um, I think that that would do wonders, right? And so often that we don't. We come across really... unpleasant actually mm-hmm. <laughs> toward someone who doesn't yeah, I share think my, my concern
0: with the person who's on the pedestal is the temptation for them to come across as self-righteous self-righteous
2: condescending in... yeah that sort of thing yeah. Yeah, and i yeah i think
1: there's a narrow line between self-righteous but also competent right and some of that is going to be where you are relative to them like if you feel like you are as competent or as smart as them, you may read something that they put out differently than if you feel like you are not at that level. Um, I just have one question. We've been using Lil's version or definition of propaganda this entire time, which I think has been helpful. And I'm glad that you guys have clarified over and over again what definition we're using when we say that. But given that there was a press conference this weekend where there were debates or alternative facts presented about the numbers of the inauguration and that had many journalists uh, that I saw on Twitter really upset about the way that Trump's press secretary characterized the event, is there a specific name that we ought to use for when we feel that the press secretary or whomever, an, an arm of the government is lying, essentially, or giving wrong information, rather than propaganda. I I guess I heard propaganda trumpeted a lot. Like, that's propaganda. This feels like something straight out of 1984, Brave New World. You know, government's trying to get you to believe something that's not actually true.
2: So lies are used in propaganda, and truth is used in propaganda. So call it lies, right? It's, It's a form of propaganda. It's just that propaganda isn't only about lying.
0: I just think the word lie is a very strong and powerful word and we ought to use it more. Fake news is just such a...
1: When you say we, do you mean like, would you feel comfortable putting that in a headline? Like if, if, for instance, if if there was a pastor who made a claim, let's go back, keep using the Muslim Obama story, right? If there was a prominent pastor who accused Obama of being a Muslim, would you be fine writing that in a headline and saying like, so-and-so lied about that?
0: Well, I would use the word lie to talk about, he knows, this person knows it's not true and nevertheless says this thing that is a lie, as opposed to a person who actually believes it. So at that point, I have to either say they're misinformed or they're really biased or something. I'd use another word. Lying I would preserve for someone who knows what the truth is and says the opposite of it. So this uh, press secretary, I don't know what his state of mind is uh, I think he really believes that the press misrepresented what was going on in Washington. So I'd call him misinformed before I'd call him a liar. Yeah. Or just, uh, there's a stronger word than misinformed. The fact that he, a press secretary, shouldn't be that misinformed.
2: You're getting now into the whole uh, area of bias. Okay. Biases, what perspective, what angle are you looking at something from, right? We all have some perspective, and I think we should. So every yes, every journalist has to select which facts they're going to report and which they're not. Uh, there may be facts that they're not aware of that are harder to uncover. There are ones that are easier to uncover, and so you use those. There are things that uh, are true about the situation that nobody knows. Um, there, so Alul talks about all the all this as well. We can't get away from that, and I don't think that in itself is a problem. I am not concerned if a certain news outlet seems to have a certain slant so to speak but again is that your... would
0: not necessarily constitute fake news to you no
2: no because we all engage in we have i don't i don't think that that neutrality sort of the view from nowhere is usually
3: well, something possible. helpful it's not even possible helpful. It's, it's that's not right possible
2: even. or helpful at ct you have certain framework that you work within and as long as you are clear in your communication as to what that framework is, and again, you are trying to engage in sound reasoning and so on, those higher epistemic forms of communication, then uh, there's there's not a problem in my mind with the fact that you have a, quote, bias.
0: Yeah, so that might be the end of this continuum. We we said there, there is somewhat of a continuum in fake news. But I would agree with you. If we're going to be precise in our language, there comes a point where it stops being fake news and it's just simply bias. And we shouldn't call bias fake news just because it doesn't accord to all the facts as we understand them. Because
2: that, that's impossible.
0: That's impossible.
2: Thank you guys for
1: this really rich discussion. Time to encourage people now to subscribe to our magazine. Hope this really just bolstered everyone's confidence in all of this. But yes, please do subscribe to our magazine, Christianity Today. As you know, we give you 10 issues a year for $10 if you use the order code that we provide on the podcast, which is orderct.com slash quick to listen. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. And you can just go with what Lisa was saying earlier is the descriptors for our magazine, where we definitely try to pursue truth here, even though we are people who are not going to be aware of everything that is going on out there. We do our best to really pursue it. and. A, take a humble attitude toward what our limits are as journalists and people guys this was a really great discussion listeners please engage with us about it on Twitter at CT podcasts or on facebook at facebook.com CT podcasts So now it's the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. We ask everyone to give a shout out, something, a person or a thing that is bringing them joy this week. And then let our listeners know where they can be found online after the show concludes. Lisa, do you mind starting?
2: You know, I'm going to say the weather. This has been a very mild January for sh- the Chicago area. And I like this kind of weather, actually. I used to live on the West Coast. And this is sort of like winter on the West Coast. And so that's that's what's bringing me joy right now. Are you like out and about? Are you going on walks? I should be, uh, but I'm working on my dissertation.
1: <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> See, that would make it harder for me. I'd be like so tempted to be outside all the time.
0: It's winters like this that I say uh, that I ask myself. So, what exactly is wrong with global warming? <laughs> right. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> um, can people find you
2: online, Simmer? Ah, uh, no. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> no.
0: But they should buy a book of yours.
2: Okay. Right. Thank you. Thanks for that prompt. So, um, the translation of Jacques Aloul called "Presence in the Modern World." It's on Amazon. It's published by Whitman Stock. You can buy it through them as well, and I recommend it to you. It's a great. It's a more accessible entry point into little's thought, and it's a great introduction to his whole thought. Awesome. Mark?
0: Uh, my joy came Sunday night. We usually have my uh, daughter, son-in-law, and their two children over. And uh, the son is adopted from the Philippines, so he's still adjusting to a new family, new life. And so sometimes he has little tantrums that when things don't go his way he's very upset so he had his tantrum and his mom finally convinced him to come to come to the dinner table and then i said uh i could tell he was still upset i said do you do you want me to hold you and he nodded so i basically held him and rocked him and sang to him went off to the living room and sang to him for about 15 minutes that's was precious. a precious moment it sure. was a precious moment <laughs> he needed a grandpa
1: How's his? does he speak now
0: he's getting there he has, he has speech, various speech impediments they're working with a speech therapist on, but he's just a young man you cannot not like. He's just so delightful, except when he has his tantrums, but that's true of any child.
1: It's true, unfortunately. <laughs> Probably true of us, too, when we were little. Mark, where can people find you?
0: Oh, uh, I am also not on uh, Facebook or Twitter. And I didn't realize until just this conversation that I was doing it for principled reasons. <laughs> I'm trying not to be persuaded by propaganda. No, but I do uh, publish a newsletter to give more information out to more people than they probably need. But I find it interesting. And that can be found at ChristianityToday.com, The Galley Report.
1: Awesome. So I'm... A- my precious moment hasn't happened yet, but I'm going to see Hamilton tonight, ah. which I'm really looking forward to. Bought my tickets a couple months ago. A bunch of people in the office have already been. Yeah.
0: So we'll expect you I, to be I hearing... hope
1: all of the listeners know what Hamilton is. Okay, I'm going to tell people in case they don't know. Hamilton is a musical that has been on Broadway for a number of months. That is the story of Alexander Hamilton, who definitely thought a lot about information and a lot about... The stuff that we're thinking and how to influence people. He was probably one of the most formative, um, founding fathers in terms of what the structures and systems of our country look like. He wrote a number of Federalist Papers, which were, I don't, I don't know. I need to go back and read them to see where they fit on that
2: propaganda spectrum. But he was really into effectiveness. Yeah, right? tell me more. Yeah, I think no,
1: I think so. Yeah, That's with right. The National
2: Bank and all that. Yeah, all those structures and how things yeah. are going to work and.
1: So he's he's really fascinating. In fact, one of the tensions of the play is that Hamilton, talking about institutional background and authority, Hamilton is an illegitimate child whose mother dies shortly after he's born. And so he he's an orphan who comes to New York without any type of credibility to his name. And he's trying to make it. And he's trying to make it through a, a institution that lots of people have tried to make it through, which is the military. And George Washington is like, Actually, you're not really that helpful to me if you're in the military. The way that you're helpful to me is by writing. Like you will, the way that you will influence people and do your best work is with your pen. And so anyway, the musical kind of brings to life the different things. One of the most interesting things is that at one point, Hamilton has an affair. And after he's kind of confronted about it by people with the affair, he outs himself about this affair through something called the Reynolds pamphlet, which circulates about that, where he's kind of like trying to cast himself as the victim and say what went on. Anyway, it's not was not his best look to write something that basically admitted to that. But it is this theme that he keeps going back to where he thinks he can write himself out of trouble. And sometimes he doesn't, sometimes he doesn't. So I'm going to see Hamilton and I'm really excited about it. That's great. Listeners can follow me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That's it for us this week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is a production of Christianity Today, and you can find other podcasts that Christianity does by searching for Christianity Today on iTunes. Remember to head to orderct.com slash Listen for our $10 for 10 issues price. This show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Alred. You can subscribe to it on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please rate and review us. That really helps a lot. We will see you all next week.